Uh, my kids, we introduced them to a game not too long ago, a few years ago, called, uh, this is a little embarrassing, it's called Killer Bunnies. It's a card game, and the object is to collect the magic carrot. And uh, one of the ways that the gameplay works is that you, you know, in order to play most of the cards in the game, you have to have a bunny, a, a bunny card out on the table, not a real bunny, thank goodness. And the, if you uh, don't have a bunny card out on the table, you can't win the game. So what do you think, like, for example, I will do whenever I'm playing killer bunnies? It's in the name. I'm going to kill as many bunnies as I possibly can. And uh, why is this significant? Well, you see, part of the game, you can actually make, uh, you know, there, there actually aren't that many rules in the game. You can change things as you're going. But one of the things you often do is you make deals with the people around you, right? I won't kill your bunnies if you don't kill my bunnies. Does anyone want to come over to our house and play killer bunnies sometimes? <laughs> sounds like fun, doesn't it? Um, sounds a little grim, too, but that's okay. I won't kill your bunnies if you won't kill my bunnies, right? That's a deal. It's like a treaty, right? Like a covenant. Yeah, you see where I'm going. And God, in his relationship with us, makes certain covenants, makes certain promises. It says, if you do this, I will do this. Or if, uh, actually, there's one covenant in particular where God doesn't require anything of the people he makes this covenant with. This is the Noahic covenant, right? The covenant with Noah. Remember, Noah is, he builds the ark, it rains, there's a big flood, everybody dies except for Noah and his family and the animals on the ark, and then they land on the mountain, and, and they get out of the ark, and God makes a promise. He says, what? Never again will I destroy the whole earth by a flood like this. Some covenants are like that. Remember the covenant with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. God says, Abraham, go from your country and your family to the place that I'll show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I'll give you a land, and I will bless you and make your name great, and I will make you a blessing to all the world. Right? It's if you go, I will do these things. Then we come to David. I remember King David. He's the greatest of all of Israel's kings. He's the king after God's own heart. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David says to the prophet Nathan, Hey, Nathan, I am living in this great palace that we built, but God's, you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. Shouldn't we build him a temple? And Nathan says, David, whatever you want to do, do it, because God's with you. And Nathan leaves and as he's walking away, he hasn't gotten very far. And God says, Nathan, that's not what I said. You turn around, you go back to David. And so Nathan does. And, and Nathan says, okay, David, I spoke too soon. Here's what God says. Would you build me a house? You know, I've been happy in my tent the whole time. I don't, you are not the one to build me a house. But instead, David, I will build you a house. And your descendants will forever be the king of my people. This is another one. God doesn't say, actually, God does give a little bit of an if here. He says, if your descendants will walk in my ways, if they'll do the sorts of things that I want them to do, if they'll obey the law, then you shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. Now, 
This isn't just a covenant, is it? It's a story. If you start reading through, if you, David's story is in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and then we get to 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Kings basically talks about how, yeah, David was pretty great, although he made some pretty bad mistakes, it turns out, after we're all, and then his kids came along, and Solomon seemed pretty great, but well, he messed up pretty badly too. And, and then Solomon's son Rehoboam came along and he was pretty bad. And as a matter of fact, the 10 tribes of Israel left the kingdom. So we don't want anything to do with Solomon's son. And only two tribes stayed with Rehoboam. And from then on, the kingdom was divided into the 10 northern tribes of Israel and the two southern tribes of Judah. Really, Judah and Levi were the two who stayed behind. Because the temple... Solomon did build it. It was in Jerusalem, and that's where the Levites did their work. Now, if that sounds pretty bad, you know, you split the country and, and we'll never be whole again, is what it felt like, things got worse from there. Worse and worse and worse. Until when King Ahaz comes along, they actually boarded up the temple of God. We don't care anything. And remember, this is one of David's sons. The 10 northern tribes were not ruled by David's sons, but the two southern tribes were. And King Ahaz was one of David's descendants, and he boarded up the temple. I don't, have, I don't care at all what God promised he will do. I don't know if it's because he thought God won't deliver or can't deliver or there's a better God somewhere else or if that's just how arrogant Ahaz was. But the temple of God has boarded up. And, you know, there's a little bit of up and down after Ahaz, but the fate of the nation is basically sealed. The Assyrians come in and they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. A few years later, the Babylonians come in and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. And God's people are now all in exile, those who have survived anyway. Things are pretty bad. And they must have been thinking, you know, will, are we really going to make it? Are God's promises really going to come true? There's no Davidic king ruling from Jerusalem. We don't have any king of our own at all. Things are about as bad as they could be. And then God brings his people back from Babylon near the uh, end of the 6th century B.C., and still they're not ruling over their own land, but at least they're in their own land. They rebuild the temple, and they rebuild the walls. And then uh, they are conquered over and over by these two. Remember, Alexander the Great comes through eventually. Uh, this would be uh, a few centuries before Jesus, a couple of centuries before Jesus or so. And uh, uh, his, when Alexander dies after conquering the entire known world, including that area all the way down to Egypt from Greece, so that means Israel. When Alexander dies, his four uh, most prominent generals divide up his empire between them. And you have the Ptolemies in the south and around Egypt and the Seleucids in the north around Turkey, Iran, that sort of area. And they fight over the kingdom of Israel. So imagine this is your life for at least 100 years or so. You have armies coming from the south conquering, armies coming from the north reconquering, back and forth and back and forth. You think that makes for a good life for the people who are stuck in the middle? They're saying, God, when are you going to make good on your promises? 
When will we have our own king to protect us from these marauding empires to the north and to the south? And then in the middle of the first century BC, the Israelites actually get together, they revolt, and they, they gain their independence. The Hasmoneans come to uh, power in Israel, in Jerusalem, and they throw off all of these other invading armies, all of these other invading kingdoms, and they have independence for about 100 years. But the Hasmonean rulers are not... Uh, in the line of David. And so people are saying, this still isn't quite right. When is God going to make good on his promises? It feels like we're so close, and yet the closer we get, the farther away everything is. And then, of course, Rome rolls through, and they conquer everybody and everything, and they do whatever they want and rule in whatever way they want. So they don't even have their independence anymore. And this is about the time that Jesus is born. And Matthew, right off the bat, wants us to know something important about Jesus. He gives us this genealogy. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in church before where you got a genealogy read to you. It's not the easiest sort of thing to listen to, is it? It's like so-and-so begat so-and-so. I can't pronounce half of these names. I don't know what, who any of them are. Why is this significant and why is this important? I want to focus on three ideas out of Matthew chapter 1 this morning. And also, uh, just so you know, I, didn't, uh, I initially thought of having Ray read to you the first 17 verses, the whole genealogy, and I decided that probably wouldn't be easy for everybody. And Ray never, may never be liturgist again if I do that. So we just went with the first six verses. But here's the first thing that I want you to know. The genealogy starts off in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does he choose these two people, first of all, to say this? If you want to know who Jesus is, the first two things you need to know, he is the son of David, he is the son of Abraham. Uh, Matthew's going to focus on David, but before we get there, I'm going to talk to you a bit about being the son of Abraham. Remember we talked about killer bunnies, and what did we learn from killer bunnies? About covenants, right? And two of the most significant covenants in the Old Testament are the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. When Matthew tells us Jesus is the son of Abraham, first of all, he wants us to know he's a Jew. He's one of God's people. But probably even more significantly, what he wants us to remember is that opening of the Bible, that story that's running through the entire book of Genesis. Do you remember? It's, it's we're waiting for that descendant of Eve. Remember that first scripture reading? We've heard it repeatedly throughout Advent. He said, uh, God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you'll crawl on your belly, you'll eat dust, and I will put enmity between you and the, the woman. And her seed, some descendant of hers in the future, you will strike his heel, which it's not good to be bitten anywhere by a snake, but the heel, you know, maybe if you can be bitten anywhere, it'd be the heel. But what will the seed of the woman do? He will crush your head. And we call this, actually, scholars call this, we don't call it this because who knows what this means. It's called the Protevangelion, which means the first gospel. God's first promise. I will make right what has gone wrong in the garden. And immediately, we move on to the narration of Eve getting pregnant, and she has two children. Remember Cain and Abel. We know that story doesn't work out very well. 
But it's really important to, to understand how Eve greets her children. She names her first Cain, Cain, and she says, with the help of the Lord, I have gotten a man. And you have a sense, first of all, that Eve doesn't know anything about what it means to have babies because she's the first woman, right? She's the first baby who's ever been born. And so she understands better than anyone else what a miracle this is. But you also remember what God had promised, right? The seed of the woman. And she must have been thinking, here is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And then she has Abel. And do you know what Abel's name means? It means breath. And the sense in which Eve is using this is, who cares? I've got Cain. Now here's the second baby. It's just like a breath. Here and gone. doesn't matter. Eve is convinced that God's promise is going to be fulfilled through Cain and the serpent's head will be crushed. And of course, what happens is the serpent dominates Cain. Sin dominates Cain, who kills his brother. As a matter of fact, Cain, his offering to God is rejected while Abel's is received. And God says to him, why do you look like that? If you're a parent, you've said this before to your children, haven't you? Why do you look like that? And usually when you ask that question, it's because they've just done something wrong and you've corrected them and now they're all angry. And you're saying, why do you look like that? You, this was your choice. You made your bed. Now you get to sleep in it. Which isn't a good metaphor for children who do not make their beds. But anyway. God's speaking to Cain. Why do you look like that? If you do well, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do well, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door and it wants to rule over you. And Cain then kills his brother, dominated by the serpent. He wasn't the one. But the promise does still pass down. And we keep seeing these stories. Like when Noah is born, his father says, finally, here's the one who will deliver us from the labor of our hands. Because remember, part of the curse is that by the sweat of your brow will you work the earth. And with thorns and thistles will it give its fruit to you. Finally, here's the one. Well, it, Noah was the one through whom the promise descended, but not the one through whom the promise was fulfilled. As a matter of fact, Noah and his children are the only ones who survived. And then we get to Abraham, and God says, the promise is going to pass through you, Abraham. And I'm going to give you a son, Isaac, through whom the promise will pass. And then remember, Isaac has Jacob and Esau as children. And Jacob apparently cares very deeply for God's promise. Because one day Esau is out hunting and he comes back and he is really hungry. He hasn't caught anything and Jacob is, is just nonchalantly cooking a, a pot of stew as Esau comes back. And Esau says, give me some of that food or I'm going to die. Which tells you a little bit about the kind of man that Esau is. Needs his stuff right away, right now. And Jacob says, okay, as long as you will give me your birthright as the firstborn which tells you a little bit of the kind of man that Jacob is. 
And Esau says, it's no good to me if I'm dead, exaggerating just a tiny bit, and eats up the stew, and Jacob steals or deceives Esau out of his birthright. But Jacob really wants that promise to pass through him, and it does. And then Jacob has his children, the 12 sons. Remember, there's a whole musical about them, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, if you're not tracking well. And the promise continues to pass through all of these people. And we just get these moments where the promise resurfaces. And David is one of those moments. Israel shall not lack a man to be king. And he will come from your family. And you will rule. Your family will rule over Israel forever. And... So when Matthew starts off his gospel and says Jesus is the son of Abraham, he wants us to recall that big story. Jesus is the one through whom the promise is going to pass, where the serpent's head will be crushed. And then secondly, Jesus is the son of David. We just got as far as David right now, so that works well. What is the significance of this? Well, it's not just that, well, Jesus will be a king, which is kind of a generic sort of statement. But there are all these traditions that arise, all these different scriptures that talk about the kind of king that uh, David's descendant will be, that the son of David will be. And I just want to take you to Ezekiel chapter 34 to begin with. And here, the Lord is speaking to the leaders of Israel. And he says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to be skipping all through Ezekiel 34. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Apparently, it's not just in the 21st century that we just look out for number one, is it? Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Shouldn't you care for the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but do you, not, you do not take care of the flock. And then in verse... 20. This is, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. I myself will judge between the fat sheep, the shepherds, and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Matthew's genealogy says Jesus is the son of David. He is the good shepherd, which the Gospels will make clear over and over again, who will finally take care of the sheep. See, when Jesus goes out and he feeds the 5,000, for example, remember this story? Just a couple, of a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. He doesn't do it just so people will be like, wow, that was really neat, Jesus. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus does feed the 5,000, it says that the people came up and they're like, wow, that was really neat, Jesus. And Jesus then runs away to the other side of the lake because they wanted to take him and make him king by force because they're like, you know what? We need a king who can, who can feed us all out of just a, a couple of loaves and some fish. And when Jesus gets over there, he says, Did, do you follow me because you saw and understood the signs or because you had your fill? 
Do you know that I'm actually the son of David who will rule on God's behalf over his people? Do you want to live into that or do you just want to be full? And in John, he tells them, yeah, you just want to be full. That's why you're here. You don't care about what God's doing. You just want to be fat and happy. Wow, that's a little convicting, isn't it? I got to be honest, every day when I wake up, you know what one of my first concerns is? How can I be fat and happy today? More or less. And it's not wrong to want our needs to be provided for. Jesus even tells us to pray for that, right? Give us today our daily bread, which maybe doesn't sound as fat and happy as we'd like to be. But Jesus does care. God does care about our daily needs. But he's saying the purpose of my calling you is not solely that you will be fat and happy. It's to build a world where the people are fat and happy everywhere. It's to bring everyone into that. It's not just to feed you, but to feed us all. It's bigger than just you. Bigger than just me. Jesus is the son of David, the one who is God's good shepherd for his people, who will lead us into everything that we need to be good and to be holy and to be righteous and to be in a world where we don't struggle against each other any longer. I don't know uh, how many of you have been watching World Cup. I assume all of you have been watching as much soccer as you can. Uh, but the games the last couple of days have been spectacular. I mean, I'm going to shootouts or close games, you know, interesting until the very end. And, but one of the things uh, that strikes me when I watch these, because now it was the quarterfinals just finished, which means there were eight teams left out of 32. And four of them went home this last week. And uh, when these teams, it, World Cup only happens once every four years. So a lot of the players here, this, is, this might be their last chance to win the World Cup. And uh, especially, yes, was it yesterday? No, it must have been the day before. Portugal played. And Portugal is the country of Cristiano Ronaldo. Have you ever heard that name? Cristiano Ronaldo. He's one of the greatest soccer players who has ever played. Uh, he also definitely knows he's one of the greatest soccer players who ever played and has some ego to go with that. And that may be how some of you know him. But in any case, at the end of the game, Portugal lost. And of all teams to lose to, they lost to Morocco. Morocco uh, is the first African nation to ever make it to a World Cup semifinal. This is a big deal. And Ronaldo, at the end of the game, you know, he... He didn't stay around on the... He, he stood there just dumbfounded for a few seconds. And he started walking off the field. And he walked into the tunnel and into the locker room. By the time he got... And, of course, the cameras were following him the whole way because he's one of the most famous men in the world. And by the time he got to the locker room, he was weeping, face in his hands, trying to hide from all the cameras everywhere. Every team that lost, the players collapsed on the field. It, it just the disappointment dominating the moment. I found it hard to watch. Because on the one hand, you see the team that wins, and they're celebrating, and they're jumping up and down, and they're so excited, especially 
those people from Morocco. No one ever thought they could be there. They're just amazed and taking in the moment. And then on the other side, there's such despair. And isn't that the nature of the world that we live in these days? You know, in soccer, maybe, I hope all these guys, they're going to, at the end of the day, say, I'm disappointed, but it's a soccer match. You know, life will go on. We'll be okay. But the truth is that this same thing happens not just in something as, as spurious as soccer, as insignificant as soccer. It happens in terms of how food gets distributed in the world. It happens in terms of how health gets distributed in the world how peace is distributed in the world. I'm not being political and being like, look at all those meanies. I'm just saying the fact of the world that we live in is the good things are not distributed in a way that is fair and just. Because the serpent reigns. And what God wants to build is a world where that isn't true anymore. And for those of us who have a lot, Following Jesus is going to have a high cost, won't it? Because it's saying what I have is not primarily for me. But for the Lord who wants to care for those who lack. Jesus is the son of David, meaning among many things that he is God's true shepherd who restores the lost and feeds the hungry and all of those other things. But here's the, the last thing I want to point out this morning out of this passage. You read the genealogy. I, there shouldn't be women in here by first century standards. And yet there are. And not only are there women in this genealogy, you know, not only are there women, but some of them are foreigners. In the genealogy of Israel's chosen king. It, keep in mind, I mean, in the US, we're, we're like, we're a melting pot. You know, it's great for all peoples and all cultures to come together. And, you know, it's wonderful. You can make something out of yourself no matter where you came from. It's amazing. You know, if, as long as you're born in the country, you can even be president. It doesn't matter who your parents were, where they came from. But for the people of Israel, that's not the way they would have thought about this. Because God told them, separate yourselves out from the people around you. Did you know it's part of what it means to be holy? To be holy means to be set apart. And that's part of the reason God gives the law. And some, I remember a friend of mine once said, you know, I can't be a Christian. I, I, he grew up in the church. We grew up going to church together. And, uh, and he told me, one day, yeah, I, I just can't believe it anymore. Because he, the Bible says things like, don't put a patch on a piece of cloth that's from another piece of cloth. That's nonsense. That's ridiculous. And the fact of the matter is that the purpose of that law was not that, you know, patching one piece of cloth with a different piece of cloth is morally wrong, Hitler. The point is you are to be holy and unstained. And I want you to have reminders of that throughout the common and the special places of your life. I want even your clothes to reflect the call that I have on you as my people. On the one hand, that's a little annoying, isn't it? It's like, God, can't you keep your hands out of anything? But on the other hand, it's actually encouraging because we think there is nothing too small in my life 
for God to pay attention to. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll uh, ask people, I always, you know, whenever I meet with people as a pastor, and I say, how can I pray for you today? And a lot of what I hear back will be, pe people will say something like, well, you know, I'm having a hard time with this. And I know it's not that big a deal, right? People in the world are starving or, you know, have incurable illnesses or something like this. And I'm complaining about this little inconvenience in my life. And, you know, let me, let me first of all, uh, say that, yeah, it's good to have perspective, and it's, it's good to remember that this thing that happened to me might not be the most horrible thing that's ever happened to me in the history of mankind. Good attitude. But that doesn't mean that God has stopped caring about even the smallest difficulties in our lives. Bring them to the Lord in prayer. There's a reason you care about them. There's a reason we all care about all of these little things. The world's not supposed to be this way. God's in the midst of repairing it. Don't leave something out of your prayers just because you think, oh, I don't want to waste God's time on that. He's, he's too big. You can't possibly waste his time. You and I are times limited, right? We can't deal with every single problem that comes up. But then we put that on God like his time and his strength and his ability is limited as well. And if he helps me with this thing, you won't have time to help someone else with that other thing. Or, or worse yet, we think if God helps me with this, he's going to write it down in this little notebook and be like, you're getting awfully close to the budget of power I've you know, allocated for you. So you better choose your next prayers really carefully here. Because you've only got three more, like he's a genie or something like that. right? You've got three wishes. You know, God, if, if God ever came up and, you know, you rub the lamp and out pops God, first of all, this is a horrible analogy. But secondly, if that ever happens, God will be like, you know, say, I'll give you three wishes. And then he'll nudge you and he'll say, hey, wish for more wishes. That's the kind of God he is. He cares about even the littlest things in our lives. And he cares even about the littlest people as well. He took Rahab. Rahab, the first woman, the first foreigner who appears in this list. Rahab heard about how Israel had come out of Egypt with great signs and wonders. And she saw them crossing over the Jordan River. And she said, they serve the real God, the true God. And I want to belong to that family. And so she gives up. She doesn't just give up. She betrays her own people to join God's people. And when she gets there, is God like, you know, it's really, I, I do have a, like an affirmative action program to get you in, Rahab. I just want you to understand you'll be second class. No, God says, wow, you are going to be in that promised line. And then Ruth comes along. Ruth is another foreigner. Remember, uh, there's a famine in Israel, so Naomi and her family leave Israel. They're not supposed to do this, but they do. And they go and they take foreign wives, they're, her sons take foreign wives, which they're not supposed to do, but they do. And then the sons die, and the father dies, and all that's left is Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And she says, you know, go back to your families. I have nothing to offer you. I'm just going to go back to my people and die. 
And Ruth says, never. Wherever your people will be my people, I'm going with you. And Naomi can't get rid of her. Naomi comes back to her people, comes back to Israel. And you remember when she gets there, everyone says, it's Naomi. What's happened to her? Such a tragedy. All of the men in her family have died. She is totally destitute. She has nobody and nothing. And Naomi says something quite understandable to everyone. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because that's what I am. And Ruth sticks with her, and Ruth doesn't become bitter. And Ruth goes out, and she gleans in the fields, and she provides for herself and Naomi, according to the law that God had laid down. Ruth, even if she didn't understand it, was showing her faith in God's promises. Look at the nation God has built, where even the destitute can eat. And she finds... Boaz, who turns out to be a family member who, according to Jewish law, can be a kinsman redeemer, which means can give, can marry Ruth and give her a son to continue her dead husband's line. That's exactly what happens. And Ruth, who maybe should have expected a life of no great significance or meaning or ease, definitely no fat and happy in Ruth's future, yet God rescues her and puts her in Jesus' line. She is like the 14 times great grand, no, more than that, I don't know how great, but she's the very great, great grandmother of Jesus. And then David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Remember the story of Uriah? Or, as we might know it better, the story of David and Bathsheba? David sends out the army, which includes Uriah, who's one of David's mighty men, talked about in the books of Chronicles. And while they're gone, David's on the roof of the palace, and he sees a naked woman bathing. He's like, that's a pretty woman. Bring her to me. They get together and do the things that people might do in that sort of situation. David sends her home. She comes back and says, I'm pregnant. So David brings Uriah home and says, Uriah, you know, take a day off. Go be with your wife. You know, do things that husbands and wives do. Uriah says, I'll never do that. I'm on military duty. It's my job while my brothers are out in the field not to have the comforts of home. And he stays in the city gate. David tries to get him drunk and send him home to his wife. He still doesn't go because he's a righteous man. Finally, David sends him back to the front. He and Job, uh, the commander of the army, conspired together. Joab, I should say. And uh, they figure out how to get Uriah killed in battle. The whole army is attacking a portion of the wall. Joab tells everyone but Uriah, hey, when I say this, everyone get back. And so he says that, and everyone goes back except Uriah, who's now all alone, murdered by David and Joab. And out of that relationship, God brings Jesus. How incredible. What does this tell us? All these promises that God gave to Israel, the promises that he gives to you and me, they're not supposed to stop at us. They're supposed to keep on going out, out to all the world. Because at Christmas, everyone is invited. You know, I have to be honest, when, when uh, Christmas comes around, there's a little part of me that's angry that non-Christians are celebrating it. This is the unsanctified, unholy part of me. Don't imitate this. 
Because it's like, dude, that's our holiday. And you're just like Santa Clausing it up over there. And there's nothing less Christmas than Santa Claus who watches you to make sure you don't do anything wrong before he gives you a gift. What does God do at Christmas? Is it anything like that? No, it's the opposite. He says, I know all the bad things that you've done, and I'm going to give you the gift anyway. You know who invented Santa Claus? Parents! You naughty children. You're not getting any presents at Christmas unless you behave and make my life more convenient. Because we're not actually seeking character transformation at Christmas, are we? We're just like, just give me a break. Give me a month off. I get a little angry sometimes when the rest of the culture is celebrating Christmas. Like, dude, you're, yeah, you got it all wrong. This is about Jesus. How can you do Christmas without Jesus? But what God is actually telling us in the genealogy of Jesus is, hey, instead of getting angry at those people, would you just go and invite them deeper? Would you just go and say, hey, I'm so excited that we get to share Christmas together. Can I tell you a little bit about what God wants to do for the world at Christmas? Can I invite you into that? Uh, at our church, we have a vision statement in our core values. And our core values are things like worship God, serve our neighbor. Those are pretty self-evident and obvious for the most part, right? But my, one of our core values is invite everyone. And we use scripture to talk about this. Isaiah 55.1, which Ray read for us. It'll be easier to find it in my liturgy than in my Bible on short notice. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And that's the kind of attitude we're trying to cultivate at our church. You don't have to do anything to be welcome here. You don't have to be anyone to be welcome here. Because in Jesus Christ, we are all invited before we're cleaned up. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ instead of the gospel of Santa Claus. And praise God, it's so much better. And as we stand behind or stand beside the manger in these days, and we see Jesus coming into the world in the way that he did. It's a little hard to imagine. Like, at Christmas, it feels like God is at his most approachable, right? In the sense of he's a baby. He can't make me do anything, right? He can't give me orders. We just kind of get to, like, bask in the glow of the, the baby at Christmas. But did you pick? These things are already coming true around the baby Jesus. Reality is already bending and breaking around him because though as a baby, he seemingly has no power to achieve anything at all, yet the shepherds are invited in, aren't they? The angels come, go and find the baby. And they marvel. And the pagan astrologers from hundreds or even thousands of miles away journey to bow down before the king and worship. The world is already changing on Christmas morning and on Christmas day. And the great mistake we could make is in thinking that at Christmas, Christmas is the time that Jesus is safe, where he won't ask or demand anything of me, where the world won't start transforming around him in ways that might get a little bit uncomfortable for who I am and who God wants me to be. No. As soon as you come to Jesus, fully God and fully man, 
the world starts to come together in the way it was always intended to be. Everyone is invited.